Hello, and welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is deputy editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. Today we will be talking about Spider-Man Far From Home. But before we get to the new Marvel movie, we have some podcast news to share with you, which is that the Collider.com podcast is moving to its own uh, feed. It's moving to a new channel. Yes. So right now, if you're listening and you're subscribed to this podcast on iTunes, you're subscribed to the Collider Factory, where we're among other podcasts. But we, I spoke with some of the uh, folks, some of our friends in Burbank, and we all agreed that it's probably better for our podcast uh, to be among other podcasts that are coming from Collider.com writers. Uh, so with that in mind, we will be moving to a new podcast feed that'll be just podcasts from people who write for Collider.com. Indeed. And, and so that's going to make it easier to find this podcast. Um, you're going to just, uh, it'll be a lot easier to listen to new episodes. It's just going to streamline everything. And hopefully you'll, you'll follow us to this new feed. Obviously we will tell you many, many, many times to subscribe to the new feed. You have been warned. And we will tell you the name of the new feed once that is settled. <laughs> yeah, once everything is set up, but just it's happening probably within the month. Um, once all those details are hammered out, we will obviously share that with you. But just as a heads up, we are leaving the Collider factory, but we are not going away. We're just moving to a new feed where you can listen to these episodes uh, more easily. Back to the old days for longtime listeners who've been with us since 2012. Yes. When we were the collision. <laughs> and then and then the collider.com podcast and then in the collider factory and now back to a collider.com feed exactly but it's been a long journey folks yes what a what what a wild ride <laughs> our first podcast was on the hunger games the very first hunger games movie a franchise that doesn't exist anymore except that it does <sighs> they're making a prequel adam she's writing oh, a prequel don't I, you want to know what happened at the 10th hunger hunger games i really don't and i like those movies but i really don't yeah, me neither. I'm kind of done. I'm okay with it. I I, I, I got it, Suzanne Collins. I figured it out. Uh, okay. So with that, uh, that programming note in mind, let's move on to talk a little bit about Spider-Man Far From Home. The, the first half of the show, we'll talk a little bit about the film in general. We're not going to talk about spoilers. And then we, once we move into the second half of the show, then we'll start discussing spoilers and we'll obviously give you a warning before that happens. So uh, just in general, I thought the film was enjoyable, not, not as good as homecoming, but I have a lot of fun with what far from home is and what these Spider-Man movies are within the Marvel cinematic universe. I feel like they're the only movies that are like, this is what all this stuff is like for normal people. Uh, which I think is pretty vital. I think when if you don't have that kind of story, it just becomes a story about gods and people just become insignificant. They get forgotten and it makes the films very <sighs> distant. You know, even if even if they're, you know, focusing on the relationships between characters, it still feels like the world it's it's when you're like, oh, you're saving the world and it's just a bunch of CGI extras that are being saved then the stakes are lessened. So I like the, what the Spider-Man movies are doing. Um, even if I think Far From Home, uh, its most interesting stuff is the stuff I can't talk about <laughs> just yet. <laughs> it's the most interesting stuff about the movies is the stuff that I can't talk about. Uh, the stuff that I can't talk about is that it is fine. I, you know, I, I enjoyed it. I had a good time with it. Um, what did you think? 
Um, I thought it was okay. Uh, and the the like, I'll, I'll elaborate on my thoughts when we get into the spoiler portion of the of the podcast. That's kind of where my quote unquote problems with the movie are. Um, but I have a feeling it's going to be really forgettable. It doesn't. It feels like it has too much going on, and it's kind of unfocused. There were aspects of it that I really liked. I think they really got the Peter MJ stuff great this time around. That was some of my some of my favorite aspects of the film. Um, but a lot of the stuff around that, I just felt like it never really. You know that feeling in home, like when you're watching Homecoming and you feel like all of the gears click together, and then you're just like zooming down the autobahn, and you're like, "This is amazing." This movie, it felt like the the gears didn't quite click together yet. There were some parts where like they clicked and you were going real fast, but then like they would, they would kind of come apart a little bit and, and everything would kind of slow down and would not fall apart. Like the movie didn't fall apart, but it just kind of, it, it has drags. A weird pace. Yeah. It, it drags. Pace. It has a weird pace. It kind of goes in fits and starts. And like the movie starts over again a couple of times. Um, so I, I don't know. It's a, it's a hard movie to get on to its wavelength for me. Maybe it'll improve on a subsequent viewing. Um, It's certainly not a bad movie, but I do think it's middle of the road for the Spider-Man movies as a whole, Mm -hmm. in terms of all of the Spider-Mans that have ever been made. Uh, I still think Tom Holland's excellent. Um, I think casting Zendaya was great. And there's a lot of really good stuff with Jon Favreau in this movie that I liked. Um, But on the whole, it's not... It's not near on the level uh, of Homecoming for me. Well, and it feels like a movie that's kind of constrained by its own secrecy. So I was reading the interview that that, uh, Steve Weintraub, our editor-in-chief, did with John Watts. And they were talking about sort of how do you make this film that comes out after Endgame. And he was talking about how, like, there's all this memorial stuff to Tony Stark – by the way, if you're listening to this, we're assuming you've seen Endgame. And at this point, <laughs> you can't get mad. You can't what? be like, I didn't have a chance to see Endgame. But I saw <laughs> Spider-Man. But I'm thinking about seeing Spider-Man Far From Home. So I thought I'd listen to this podcast. Uh, right. Before seeing Endgame. Because I only care about Spider-Man movies. I don't care about Endgame except if it's being spoiled for me. Yeah. Anyway. But John Watts was saying, like, all the stuff, all the memorials had to be digitally added. They couldn't risk having, like, a memorial to Iron Man and then an extra season and then an extra tweets it out or whatever. There was just, it was too much secrecy to be like, Iron Man has died. And I think that makes it a kind of a weird film because, on the one hand, Peter is wrestling with that legacy and, like, you know, the loss of Tony Stark. But it's also something that no one can really talk about. Like, characters don't talk about it. No one really seems to reference. Like, it's again, it's all done in background. But it's like, basically, Endgame is this huge Fallout event. But because Marvel Studios needs to keep it secret, you have, like, the beginning section where, like, here's how the blip affected all of us. And it's <laughs> kind of funny and kind of cute. But also, like, this raises so many more questions. We need like an entire movie just to deal with Endgame Fallout. And they're like, no, 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 no. We don't have time for that. Instead, let's just go to Europe. And you're like, okay. And so (laughs) I don't want to say it diminishes Endgame. Endgame is what it is. But at the same time, you feel like the film is being, like you said, pulled in these different directions. Like, is it about Tony Stark's legacy? Is it about the fallout from Endgame? Is it just Peter, you know, trying to be on vacation? Like, it's it's a film that's juggling a lot, whereas Homecoming has a very straight idea of what it wants to be, which is that 
Peter Parker is rushing to grow up. He really wants to be an Avenger. He That's what he thinks he wants. And in the end, he learns that he needs to slow down a little bit and that he can still be a hero without being an Avenger. And I don't think Far From Home, even though I enjoyed watching it, has that sort of, you know, understanding beyond Peter being like, I have to step up and be a little bit more responsible. And even that is pretty fuzzy. Well, it's kind of ironic, right? Because Spider-Man Homecoming, like the the theme of that movie at the end is that like uh, Peter Parker is a teenager and he needs to like be a teenager. He needs to enjoy his friends and go to the dance and, you know, do whatever. He doesn't need to waste time being an adventure. Whereas Far From Home is like, all right, buddy, you got to step up. Like Iron Man's gone. You got to be Iron Man now. <laughs> and it's kind of grooming him to be like take over whatever. Which is uh, a weird place to put Spider-Man. And, and Emily Vanderwoof pointed this out on Vox, which is that Spider-Man is always one of his defining characteristics is that he always struggles. Like he struggles yeah. with paying the rent. He is like he is a street level hero. Like he's the most famous, but he doesn't have like vast resources. His personal life is really difficult and he doesn't have like that cushion. And it's weird to be like, but what if we make him the next Iron Man? It's like, but Iron Man never had to worry about paying the fucking rent. Like that's not his battle. That's not his, his struggle. And so it's like Peter Parker, like within the Marvel Cinematic Universe, yeah, it makes sense that Peter Parker looks up to Iron to Tony Stark because they're both like into you know science and that's all well and good. But fi- but in terms of financially, they come from very different places, and it's weird to be like maybe the new Iron Man is Spider Man, and like I don't think that works as well as you think it does. Yeah, it's a strange thing, and I I do think the idea, and we'll get into more of this in the spoiler portion, but I but I do like the idea that Iron Man's death creates a power vacuum, and that like. Iron Man is gone and there is no um, uh, kind of like ideal successor. And so it's kind of jockeying to be like, oh, you know, who could be the next Iron Man and who who would want that mantle, who would want to be the hero of uh, the world, um, who would want that fame and whatever, um, uh, which is pretty interesting. But then it's also a European vacation movie and it's dealing with kind of hijinks. And that's and also like a stuff. spy thriller. That's also a spy thriller. And then also in terms of the secrecy, like not only um, uh, like so it would be a bit redundant for the film to very seriously take on uh, the fallout from Endgame because the first act of Endgame, the first hour of that movie is essentially the leftovers. Like it's a grief drama. It's very sad. Uh, and to continue on with that in Spider-Man Far From Home isn't necessarily the palate cleanser that you want audiences to go with. But leaning into kind of the comedy aspect i think it ignores it a little too much but then you also have to factor in the fact that they were shooting this movie before endgame came out and these cast members were not allowed to know that tony stark dies or to know how endgame ends who comes back and how they come back was all under wraps so really the only scenes in which you have people openly discussing the events of endgame are scenes between tom holland and john favreau and scenes between tom holland and sam jackson Anything else where there are like mentions or whatever, you see like um, there was one specific instance, I think, where like Peter Parker says like, you know, Tony's dead or Tony died or whatever, but it's off camera and you're just looking at like Jacob Batalon's face because like clearly I don't think he was allowed to say it in the room. So uh, it's one of those things of like and, – and this isn't new. Like in The Empire Strikes Back when they were shooting it, um, instead of Luke, I am your father, it was Luke, I killed your father. 
that was what people on set understood to be the twist in that movie. Um, but I do think it constrains some of the events of Far From Home here when you have the actors unable to openly discuss this big thing that happened, which is that uh, Peter's mentor and the world's hero is dead. Yeah, like that's the thing. It's sort of like the MCU is this television show, but what if it were a television show where no one's allowed to know what's happened between episodes? Mm-hmm. You know, it it does. It, <laughs> kind of, imagine Agents of Shield. Imagine you're making a TV show about Shield, and you find out in the middle of making it that the movies are about to blow up what Shield is, <laughs> and they're like, "We don't care. Figure it out." Yeah, exactly. We're not, we're well, not working with you, but uh, yeah. here's what we're doing in the movies. So just FYI. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's just so I, I so yeah, Far From Home is like it's it's fun. I enjoy it. I just it's a film that again, the stuff I can't t- the stuff I can talk about is sort of not the most interesting things about it. Um the stuff that you you, you can talk about is just sort of a film that I just feel like in a weird way, Far From Home it's kind of like a middle chapter to a more interesting Spider-Man movie, like a Spider-Man yeah. movie that doesn't have to be a palate cleanser that doesn't have to be in the shadow of Endgame, that has a very clear idea of what it wants to be. It's just by quirk of its release because Sony is like, we need us, you know, you're not, we're not waiting, you know, three years for another Spider-Man movie. You're going to give us a Spider-Man movie in two years. And I don't care. We don't care if that's after, Endgame because Endgame we don't own Endgame we don't get any money from that so you're going to give us a Spider-Man movie in two years and so it's sort of this it's the compromise that's the compromise that's the compromise that everyone has to make and honestly I'm okay with that compromise and I hope that they keep making it in that way because after Far From Home ends one of my immediate thoughts is I hope Tom Rothman the head of Sony does not fuck this up (laughs) because I can easily see him fucking it up that's very true. He could easily yeah. he could easily be like, you know what? Spider-Man is back, baby. We got Spider-Man going again. We've, you know, no one remembers Amazing Spider-Man. Spider-Man's popular again. We'll take it from here and we're going to have him team up with Venom. And yeah. it's like you don't fucking get it. You don't <laughs> understand why this works. Yeah, I'll be very curious. It's my understanding that the deal that was struck between Sony and Marvel um, expired with Far From Home. See, I um, didn't know if it expired from Far From Home or they had one movie left. So it it was so two Spider-Man movie or I think it's five appearances for Spider-Man altogether. And that's uh, it. And he's tapped and out. And two of those. Yeah. And two of those were in Spider-Man movies. Three of those were in Marvel movies. Civil War, Infinity War and Endgame. Um, after that, they have to renegotiate the contract, and there's no money trading hands. Marvel gets no money from Spider from these individual Spider-Man movies. They only get to be the creative lead on these movies in terms of like making the decisions. Um, and Sony has final stay because Sony is paying for it, but they defer to Marvel on a lot of the creative decisions. There were there were some battles over casting. Um, I think Sony was leaning a little toward Asa, Asa Butterfield, and Marvel was leaning towards Tom Holland, maybe. Um, I may be wrong on that. 
Um, but I do know there was reportedly tension over Spider-Man Far From Home's release. Marvel wanted it held. Sony wanted to move forward as, as quickly as possible. So it, I don't know how long Marvel wanted to hold it. I wouldn't be shocked if in Kevin Feige's ideal um, scenario, Endgame is the only movie that Marvel releases this year. I think that would have been kind of cool. Well, that, and, would, that, never, that wouldn't have happened because they also had Captain Marvel. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, Endgame and Captain Marvel would be the only movies yeah. they released this year. Um, and then take a long, deep breath but uh, before they do anything else so that they could uh, – that would have also afforded them the opportunity to shoot Far From Home um, and you know let the cast members in on what was going on. But obviously that didn't happen. And maybe that's not even what they wanted. Maybe they just wanted to wait and release Spider-Man in November or something. Who knows? Um, but yeah, that's what happened. Yeah, and then, look, and again, I feel like – Everyone has a good thing going. Yes, Far From Home could be better had Marvel more creative control. You know, it'd be in a in a in an ideal world, Disney Disney and Marvel just own Spider Man outright. But honestly, if that happened, they never sell Spider Man in the first place, which never really gives them the funding to make Marvel Studios in the first place. It's a chicken yeah. of the egg, you know. The the fact of the matter is is that Sony will never let go of Spider Man. He's too popular of a character. But no, what, especially now that they have Venom, so they've they've uh, successfully expanded beyond the Spider-Man character using the comics that they've licensed. We're using Marvel. the word successfully in a very loose sense. <laughs> Box office wise. Box office wise, yes, Venom is a hit. Yes. Otherwise, it's a it's garbage, and I don't I don't agree with the people who are like, no, it's fun. No, it's bad. It's just a bad film. Listen, at least we know that it takes Morbius six months to get to starring... the airport. <laughs> at least we know that Morbius starring Jared Leto will be the movie that brings all of us together. Sure. Jared Leto <laughs> going method and, you know, just sucking blood from strangers. <laughs> Acting! <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, so like, and I get it. Look, I get it that Sony is like, oh, we got Spider-Man. Like, let's, let's, you know, we can take it from here. That would be such, that would be the worst idea. That would be the worst idea for them to take it from there. Um, they should really just be like, let's do another set of five movies. Let's do another yeah. set where you give us two Spider-Man movies. You get three appearances from him. You know, you know. Let's let's keep the terms of the deal, and maybe they alter it a bit so that they can tease Spider-Man in a Venom film. Like I get it. Like they're they want Spider-Man and Venom in the same film. Even Kevin Feige is like, that's going to happen. He's not enthused. You can tell yeah. he's not enthused, but he's like, that's probably going to happen. But I would say, like, don't. Don't think that you can make a Spider-Man movie because when you thought you could make a Spider-Man movie, you made a lot of bad Spider-Man movies. Um, Let me ask you this. How would you feel if, as part of the deal, Sony brought Marvel on as a creative producer for Venom 2? Would you be more enthused about crossing Venom and, and Spider-Man together? Does Woody Harrelson get to keep his Ronald McDonald wig? <laughs> absolutely then yes uh, <laughs> okay. yeah i i mean yeah like if, if because to my mind that's the only scenario in which it works because marvel studios is not going to allow its its cinematic universe to be sullied by a film that they had no involvement in so if tom holland shows up in venom 2 that retroactively makes venom 1 and venom 2 part of the mcu and kevin feige had no hand in any of those decisions um yeah and feige's not going to do that so see my my thinking is what happens is or what could happen is that they're like okay we have spider-man you know you you laid the groundwork we'll make our we'll make our spider-man three and 
what we'll do is we we're not going to entrust it to Avi or Rod. Or maybe they do because that would just be the dumbest fucking thing and I could totally <laughs> see them doing it. But what they try to do and where we all like just sort of sit on the fence and we're like, I don't – I have very mixed feelings. Is they're like, we're going to let Lord and Miller oversee it. Yeah. And then we're like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> Because I think that is good, but also not good for this character. Why can't they just make their own Spider-Man and then <laughs> Kevin Feige make this Spider-Man and yeah. like just let it be like think like someone I hope so someone tells like Tom Rothman, this is working right now. Not because of anything you fucking did, <laughs> because this was Amy Pascal's deal. Um But like it's working. Um don't mess with a good thing. And so I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, I mean, interestingly enough, on Into the Spider-Verse, they're developing that sequel, but with zero of the creative team that made the first Spider-Verse. So, Which is who knows? fucking insane. Yeah. That's they just... got the, the guy who did Avatar, The Last Airbender, and the Voltron series on Netflix is directing. And uh, I think David Callahan is writing it, who did one the Wonder Woman sequel. Look, and, and I don't uh, want to like – I don't want to just throw that in the bin because at the same time, like – we we have to understand that animation is a much bigger commitment than live yeah. action. It's not like, oh, John Watts will just keep coming back for Spider-Man movies. Like, no, if you're going to make an animated film, that's going to be four years of your life, <laughs> not yeah. two, four. And you don't get to like, you know, and you're going to have like, you know, Spider-Verse had three directors. Like it's it's a lot. It's a, it's a lot to carry that kind of movie to the finish line. I get it. At the same time, don't mess with a good thing. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and those three directors uh, justly got their their desserts after the success of that movie. I think Bob Persietti went off to do he's doing like a Puss in Boots reboot movie or something, but he's doing Puss it by in himself. Reboots. Yes. Puss in Reboots is what Thank it's called. You. Um, and gosh, what is Rodney Rothman doing? Uh, something, maybe a live action movie or something like that. Um, so they kind of, you know, moved on. But I think that the. the uh, this is getting way off topic, by the way. Not um, really, because I mean, back. we're talking Spider-Man. We're talking, yeah. you know. But when we when we get back into the talking about the um, previous Spider-Man movies and stuff, uh, I think Spider-Verse, what made that special was all of the hands in the pot, all the fingers in the pot. Um, you had kind of those three directors working pretty closely from an outline by Lord and Miller. When Lord and Miller were fired from Solo, they came on and were, I mean, as I understand it, not credited, but basically two additional directors uh and everyone had input everyone was pitching ideas that's kind of why that movie is so crazy and has so many different povs but works as well as it does uh does the sequel work if you just have one director and one writer if you don't have any of those people involved um and i don't know at the time that it was announced that they were doing a spider sequel they said that lord and miller were expected to be involved in some capacity but no deals had been made um so and they're working on their own next live action movie, which is a uh, I think they're doing Artemis, um, uh, the book uh, by Andy Weir. Mm. Um, but yeah, I I don't know. Is that uh, that just to me that just shows Sony's willingness to be like, all right, this succeeded. It doesn't matter who's making it. We're doing another one. And look, I get like that's like I don't I, I don't agree with it, but I understand why the business is working. Like Sony has a 
like a loyalty to its shareholders and the shareholders don't care who makes the movie. The shareholders are like, when is the next one? And so you can't drag your feet and being like, well, when Lord and Miller are available again, like unless you're like a Christopher Nolan and you're like, this is a Nolan movie and his brand sells what we're pushing. Yeah. You can basically be like, we we're not waiting on anybody. The release date is the release date. And like, that's and so and I, I'm a little and I think you know going to what you said about how they have to renegotiate the deal. I think that's why we don't have a release date yet for a third Spider-Man movie. Because yeah, unless Marvel announces it at Comic Con, but that would actually probably be up to Sony. Exactly. Well, yeah, exactly. It's up to Sony. It's not Marvel. Marvel doesn't get to say what happens on Sony's release calendar. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I don't know. It's complicated, though, because Marvel's the one who hired John Watts to direct it um, and kind of push for him. I don't know. It's very complicated. I'll, I'll be very curious to see. I mean, we all expect at Marvel's Hall H panel at Comic-Con later this month that they're going to announce a slate of films coming out. Um, and these will be Marvel Studios films released by Disney. I'll be very curious to see if there's any mention of Spider-Man on stage. Yeah, that will be interesting. I, I think that'll kind of tell us a lot. So Yeah. I mean, it's it's possible. I mean, again, it's it, it it could happen. I mean, again, the the question is is does Tom Rothman want to mess with a good thing? Yeah. Cuz his movie Spider-Man Far From Home, a movie that Sony did not really direct the creative vision of, made 185 million dollars, which is way more than Men in Black International. <laughs> yes. Which Sony had all creative involvement in. Right. Exactly. So you know, and even if you want to be like, let's team them up, Venom didn't make 185 million on its opening weekend. You know, even though it's PG 13. Yeah, you know, Mor- Morbius isn't going to make over 100 million on its opening weekend. Venom did make nearly 900 million dollars worldwide, though. <laughs> yeah, it went on to make money. I'm not yeah. like it went on to make money, but I'm, what I'm saying is, is that Spider-Man: Far From Home is going to, you know. Again, if you want to mess with that, you're free to do so. But, you know, these things can drop off pretty quickly. As Sony has seen with its own Spider-Man movies that it made by itself. Right. Um, let's talk a little before we get in, uh, you know, before we get into Spider-Man spoiler, Far From Home spoilers. Let's talk a little bit about that Spider-Man franchise. Let's do it. Um, you know, Spider-Man, there is really, you know, it's funny. I was watching... Um, the movies on CNN last night. I don't know if you saw that. I did. I was watching that as well. Um, and at one point they're like, Batman created the modern superhero movie. And I'm like, it did. And it didn't. (laughs) Yeah. Like it's important, no doubt. But the films that you have to credit for what we have now are really X-Men and Spider-Man. Those are your two touchstones yeah. because Batman really just created more Batman movies. <laughs> um, yeah, nobody's, nobody's ankling for a meteor man reboot at this point in time. Uh, speak for, I your, like, I speak like for yourself. He touches the book and he can knows everything in the book for 30 seconds. I wanted that power. So bad. that's such a good power. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Or blank man. Did you see blank? I did man? not see blank man. No, blank man's a good Wayne's brothers joint. All right. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> but you know, Spider these superhero movies that didn't catch on, which yes. is why Tim which Burton's is... Batman, yes, hugely influential to the genre, hugely influential to, to blockbusters. Um, blockbusters, but didn't necessarily kick off a wave of superhero movies in the '90s um, like Spider-Man and X-Men did yeah. in the 2000s. Especially Spider-Man, the first movie to ever cross 100 million in an opening weekend. Yes, never been. 
Yep. Had never, had never done that. That had never happened before. It did it without 3D. It did it without, you know, I, I mean, I guess IMAX was around, but there wasn't all about like, we got to get. It wasn't as like effervescent at that time. Like IMAX was a thing that was, I think, slowly becoming like when I was growing up, IMAX was for like nature documentaries. Yeah. It was for some dude climbing Everest. That's what it was about. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but Spider-Man, like those Sam Raimi movies are, are pretty good for what they are. Well, three is its own beast. We'll get to that. But yeah. one and two are very confidently like kind of like a four color old fashioned comic book. Like they just yeah. are unabashedly comic booky. And in some ways, I think they're very smart to avoid explanations where explanations might be needed. So, for instance, it doesn't really explain how he gets his costume. Like it does like his costume, like he designs it and it's really advanced, but it doesn't explain like where did he get it? Yeah. Um, or, you know, rather than giving him like in the comics, you know, he has, he made his web shooters. Uh, they decided just to have organic web shooters, which was actually a holdover from James Cameron's attempt to adapt Spider-Man. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it should be said that Sam Raimi didn't just come on and create Spider-Man. No, no, no. It was, decades a, and, yeah. And also the technology was ready for Spider-Man. Like yeah. that's the thing. You could not have made a Spider-Man movie in the eighties. I mean, you could have, but it would have looked bad. Um, and they kind of did. There was the spider live action Spider-Man TV show and it looks pretty bad. Yeah. Um, with well, the- that's one of the things that's most striking about that first Spider-Man to me when I was, uh, like, I think it was like 15, 16 at the time. It was so like, it's hard to explain nowadays because CG is so commonplace, but it's, like it was jaw dropping those swinging scenes. Like it was so cool just to watch. And with Danny Elfman's score that was swelling, like you believed that he was swinging through the streets of New York city, which is something you hadn't really seen before. Right. Exactly. Like it's the technology was ready for the character. And then Raimi, you know, he Raimi'd it, you know, it is still has his silly touches. Mm -hmm. I mean, God bless Willem Dafoe, just chewing the scenery. Oh yeah. It's fun. I mean, it's so it is very unapologetically comic booky. Like, I mean, when freaking Green Goblin busts in on Aunt May and she's praying, he's like, "Finish it!" She's like, "From evil!" And it's like, ah, it's fun. We're it's all so having operatic. fun. Yeah, but it, I, I, I mean, it is comic booky and it is colorful and it is silly and splashy in a way. But I think what makes it work and what I think. Uh, is what uh, other comic book movies of the early 2000s took from it is that it took its characters and their emotions seriously. That just because you had a guy swinging through the streets of New York, just because it was colorful and just because it was a little silly, didn't mean that Peter Parker couldn't also have conflicting emotions when he finds out that the villain is his best friend's father. Um, or, you know, delving into, uh, you know, his his feelings for MJ and what does that mean Um and putting people he loves in danger. And obviously that comes through the comic books as well, but translating that visually on the screen where you can believe in one scene, you have that, you know, finish it and, you know, from evil scene, uh, at the same time, you can like empathize with Peter Parker and you are emotionally conflicted and you're invested in his well being, And you feel a little sad at the end when Norman Osborn dies. Um, you know, it all it all just works, and it's because Raimi treats those characters uh, as human beings. 
Yeah, there's a there's a premium placed on the emotional truth of the characters. And when you have that, you're kind of free to do everything else. Without if you don't have that, that's the foundation of the film. Without that, everything else kind of falls apart. Um and that's why a film like Spider Man three, I don't know what the emotional truth is. It's just Spider Man three. <laughs> I don't think but- anyone does. That, so you kind of have to trace the arc. So Spider-Man 2, I think, it, it's a bit of a stepping stone to see, like, how do we get to Spider-Man 3 and how does it go so wrong? Um, Spider-Man 2 is more ambitious, bigger, more colorful, more bombastic, but also more uh, dark, more emotional than the first movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I recently re- went back and rewatched all of the Spider-Man movies. Uh, and I was curious about Spider-Man 2 because there seems to be um, this opinion now that that like the Raimi films suck. Um, that you know, at one point in cool. time, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that at one point in time, Spider-Man 2 was the high mark for comic book movies, but now it's silly and um, stupid and dumb. Which I was like, is it though? Because I hadn't watched it in a long time, and I rewatched it, and I was like, no, this movie's fucking rad. It's still very good. Um, and like Doc Ock is perfect. The scene in uh, the surgery ward when the doctors are trying to remove the arms is classic Raimi and it's a horror movie and it's some of like the best uh, filmmaking of that era. Uh, it's just so exciting and perfect. Like every single shot in that scene is perfect. Um, but then the emotional arc of Peter Parker, who, uh, you know, is is facing loss and confusion and is unsure of himself. And then you get, you dig into the Spider-Man no more storyline where he puts up his suit. Um, But also a point of contention seems to be his loss of power. Some people saying like Spider-Man's powers can't just stop working. uh, Oh, I'm sorry. Is that in the journal of science? What the (laughs) fuck is powers can't stop? It's powers. Absolutely. It's whatever they want it to be. It's a fictional movie. What the fuck? I always just read it as like he he has the yips kind of. Yeah, he has the yips. Yeah, he's not he does there's an entire scene where he's talking to the doctor and the doctor's like maybe you don't want to do those things so your body is like not letting you. Like yeah. it's psychosomatic. This is not what? <laughs> yeah. How is that confusing? This is a film made for children. <laughs> yes. Um so yeah, I don't know. I I can having just recently rewatched Spider-Man Two, I think it holds up remarkably well, um, and I think it's still fantastic. There, but there are moments, moments, not scenes, moments where the movie seems like it's going a little too far, like a little too um, high concept, a little too operatic. Um, in uh, I mean, kind thing, of the way it's going. Here's the thing: there are be- there are definitely things in Spider-Man Two like I can nitpick, like sure. the fact that Doc Ock. Once he becomes Doc Ock, like he suddenly becomes like he's got zingers, <laughs> you know, when Octavius becomes Doc Ock, now he has zingers um, or when, uh, you know, Spider-Man, like he needs to find Spider-Man. So he's like, Peter Parker will lead me to Spider-Man. So I'll throw a car at him. And it's like, well, that's not going to help you because how do you know that Peter Parker's going to dodge a car that you threw at him? <laughs> and. But the thing is, is like, yeah, that's, yeah, that is a problem. Here's the thing. When I think about Spider-Man 2, I don't think about that. I think about him stopping the train and all the New Yorkers being like, we won't tell anyone because you're one of us and we're going to protect you just like you protected us. Yeah. Like, that's what I think about because the scenes that work, work incredibly well. And the moments that don't work are very brief and small and it doesn't make a lot of sense to dwell on them. 
Or the fact that like this is a sequel to a record-breaking blockbuster superhero movie, and the opening action sequence is, can Peter Parker deliver pizza? Which, like, by the way, just... in the video game, it's amazing that they, they included <laughs> that. The Spider-Man 2 video game is awesome. I wrote about it, it on the site a couple years ago, and it's amazing. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. But I, I just think it's so Sam Raimi to be like, you know what? Our opening scene, he's not going to be fighting a villain. He's not going to be you know, uh, in school or whatever. He's trying to deliver pizza, and Peter is just not doing well. Like He just he can't keep his job because he's trying to juggle these two identities of Peter Parker and Spider-Man, and it just isn't working. And that's the emotional through line of the film, and I think right. it works really well. But uh, to the point that there are moments where it goes a little too far, like I think what Raimi does really well on the first two Spider-Man movies uh, is balancing that comic booky tone with grounded emotions. You get to Spider-Man 3 and no one is acting like a human being at all. Not even Norman Osborn's butler. (laughs) (laughs) It's like one night he came in and I'm an expert on wounds. I'm an expert. He was impaled on his own glider. And I will tell you this. I am the person to tell you this because I know stab wounds. <laughs> it's so random. Uh, I had completely forgotten about it. So when I was watching the movie, I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> what the laziest writing. Um, Spider-Man 3 was a compromised movie from the get-go because Raimi clearly didn't want to include Venom. Um, but I also think it's just an overstuffed movie. I remembered it like being like, oh, maybe there are some moments of it that are okay, but there are no redeemable qualities to Spider-Man 3, to my mind. Like, not even Sandman. I think Sandman is boring and dull and stupid. Um, I you know, here. Let me tell you something I like that everyone hates, which is that when Spider-Man goes emo and, like, to me, people are like, oh, that's so lame. But I'm like, yeah, that's the point. Like, Spider, yeah. like, Peter, this is what Peter Parker thinks is cool. And no, he's not cool. The movie doesn't want you to think that he's cool. The point is that the character thinks that he's cool. And so his whole dancing sequence is actually makes a lot of sense. The film has a lot of problems, but that scene does make sense. Just to put that out there. Here's my problem with that scene and okay. with Emo Spidey. All right. Where does the eyeliner come from? Ah, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> but that's – I think that's indicative of the film's larger problems because it, it's this creative choice that's just a bridge too far. Mm-hmm. It's like – he's wearing – I mean, yeah. The film and, is definitely reaching. Like it's, it's, it's Raimi trying to make the best of a bad situation that essentially was forced on him by Avi Arad to be like, you have to put venom in. And he's like, I don't want to. It's like, too fucking bad. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the producer. I own the character rights. Um, you won't, you know, you're going to make, you're going to put Venom in your movie. And that's how we get a really jumble. Like the scene where Venom and Sandman meet up is just the late, like you want to talk about lazy screenwriting. Like why do these characters even know each other? How did yeah. they find each other? Why would they work together? Like it just. Uh... He's like, you hate Peter Parker, don't you? Yeah. Let's go get him. Let's go get him. Okay. There's also, by the way, which you have neglected to mention, an entire Harry Osborn (laughs) thing that's like he has amnesia and then he doesn't. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So like he – no, he doesn't have amnesia and then he gets amnesia the first time he attacks Peter Parker Mm -hmm. so that he can just be normal for a bit in the movie so that they can – and this is the thing. The movie is overstuffed. So it's like I don't have time to make Harry going after Peter right now. So let's just give him amnesia. 
put him in the fridge for a little bit so that we could deal with his other stuff. And then when we want to bring him back as a bad guy, we'll just make his amnesia go away. Yes. It's so lazy. It's so lazy. It's really quite poor. And again, what is the through line of this movie? Like, what is Spider-Man dealing with? Like, what is his emotional arc? And the problem with the, the problem with the black suit is that the black suit is can kind of, I guess, be read as like drug addiction. But it's it, the problem is, is it sort of takes away the character's choices. Like, so all the bad things that Peter does, which include trying to murder Harry Osborn, <laughs> yes. aren't really his fault. <laughs> it's the suit made me do it. And that's just not interesting for a character because it's not Peter making choices, it's the suit making choices, and the suit is black goo. Yeah. It's stupid. It's very bad. It's yeah. the worst Spider-Man movie by far. Wow. I was – okay. All right. All right. It, Listen. Worse, worse than we'll Amazing Spider-Man 2. All right. It is. It is, and I'll tell you why when we get there. All right. Well, let's move into – so – Basically, what they were going they so Sam Raimi was prepping a Spider-Man four. The villain was going to be the Vulture. They got pretty far into pre-production on this movie. Yeah. They had casted it up. They were getting ready to start shooting. Um, and then I believe the argument was over the release date. Is that correct? So there's not like a super straight answer. It's not necessarily over the release date. It was just the creative direction as mm-hmm. a whole. The statement that was released after the fact was that they all parties agreed that this franchise had kind of run its course um, and that it was time to put it to rest. From what I was able to gather, and I wrote an article kind of about the unmade version of Spider-Man 4, um, Raimi was pushing for – Raimi was essentially, after being pushed around, Spider-Man 3 wasn't going to be pushed around anymore. Um, and the studio in Abhi Arad didn't like that. And so I think they were coming to creative loggerheads and it seems like pretty um uh you know agreeably we're just like you know what this isn't working let's just not do it like if like Raimi wasn't going to compromise anymore he wasn't gonna you know not get his way because he really wanted to make up for spider-man 3 and the studio was like well we want to do this this and this uh the studio with avia rod um with them as well i think they were they were very unsure about vulture they didn't because Raimi wanted vulture for spider-man 3 and they were like no and he was like okay i won't do vulture for spider-man 3 um and he wanted span he wanted sandman so they let him do sandman but uh he was pretty adamant about doing vulture for Spider-Man 4, and I don't think they were too crazy about Vulture as a character. Um, so it was more than just a release date. It was a lot of creative disagreements. Mm-hmm. The shocking thing was that, like, the days after they announced, or maybe the same day? The, the same Spider-Man, fucking day. Same day. They were like, we're rebooting Spider-Man with a script by James Vanderbilt called The Amazing Spider-Man, which had seemingly already been written. Yeah, they had the script in their back pocket the whole time. Yeah. And James Vanderbilt was hired to write Spider-Man 4 because they had gone through a couple screenwriters and were trying to make it work. They were like and it sounds like Raimi tried really hard to make Spider-Man 4 work. He wanted to get it made. He wanted to um you know make it up to the fans and he wanted to make the studio happy because at the end of the day the studio was paying for it. Um and so it had, it had gone through a few different drafts. I can't remember exactly who all wrote on it. Um but uh, – oh, I think like David – well, they offered it to some people. I think David kept passed um, on it, um, but Gary Ross did some work on it, and uh, everyone was going to come back, and Vulture was going to be the villain. Um, this time with uh, – I think uh, – well, I guess Ben Kingsley was supposed to be Vulture for Spider-Man 3. That's who Raimi wanted, and then they cut the character. And so it came back around with John Malkovich, and then Anne Hathaway was going to be Black Cat. 
Um, no, well, yes and no. She was going. She was going to be in it, but she was going to be a new character named Voltress. In my research, like in a in a version of the script, Felicia Felicia Hardy was or Anne Hathaway was going to be Felicia Hardy. Um, but then instead of becoming Black Cat, she would become the villain Voltress. Yeah. So, that, yeah. That's, so both. Both things are true. Both things are true. Um, but I guess Sony, okay. So, and here's the thing I forgot. Here's what Sony wanted. They wanted Lizard. And Raimi didn't want Lizard. Um, and that seemed to be a major point of contention. And so Sony was like, all right, we'll reboot it and we'll do Lizard ourselves. And here's what happened then. <laughs> <laughs> Let Just in case you forgot Amazing Spider-Man... Lizard's plan is to turn everyone into lizard people. That's his big fucking plan. Although it's not really elucidated because I don't know if they ran out of money or what, but it's barely shown. Like you have a scene of like cops kind of turning into a lizard, but then it goes away, right? Yeah, and then it's not like he has lizard gas that he wants to unleash on the populace and turn them into lizard people. By the way... It's also kind of crazy, like, the stuff that got cut. Remember when we were at Comic-Con and they showed us the first footage from Amazing Spider-Man? And there was, yeah. like, a whole thing of, like, Lizard in the school. He was in the girls' bathroom. He was in the girls' bathroom. Making girls' face. Yeah. That didn't stick around. <laughs> <laughs> but it was creepy and kind of, like, at least interesting and not... Yeah. Just, you know, oh, rampaging CG monster. And that's the thing. At the end of the day, he's a rampaging CG monster. And the weird thing about Amazing Spider-Man is it seemed to be, like, how, what, like... You can see with Amazing Spider-Man, which Avi Arad, like they hired Mark Webb to direct. He was coming off 500 Days of Summer. Um, but Avi Arad was sort of the guiding vision. And it's clear that Avi Arad doesn't have any original. He has no good car ideas. Um, <laughs> no, because <Sticky. laughs> his Amazing Spider-Man is really just the Dark Knight meets Harry Potter. That's all it is. He's like, yeah. what if Spider-Man is darker and a little more sinister and a little more serious and like kind of a badass? He he skateboards this time, you guys. And <laughs> I like to skateboard. I like to skateboard. And so he's a darker character. Like he like when he gets his powers, he's like bullying criminals and like kind of drunk with power and obsessed with revenge. Like one of the dumber scenes in a really dumb movie is when he's listening to the police scanner, but only listening for crimes. Relating to his crime, to avenging yes. Uncle Ben. All other crimes are okay. <laughs> yes. But then there's this whole thing, this whole weird thing involving his parents. And this is like a big thing. This is the Harry Potter side of it, which is like, what if Peter Parker has a legacy that he doesn't know about? And his parents, his parents who are dead can clue him in to some grand legacy. Well, what is that legacy? We don't know. <laughs> like, Except they did know. And they, they did and they didn't. I'm still not convinced. Like, what, what fantastical things could fucking Ben Parker tell his son? Well, the idea was that, uh, so Ben Parker, it's revealed in Amazing Spider-Man 2 that Ben Parker was working at Oscorp on this human-spider hybrid whatever. And he found out Oscorp Oscorp was nefarious. He destroyed as many of the samples as he could. um, But uh, But there was still one sample in a room that happened to be on the day his son goes to Oscorp on a field trip and his son 
breaks the code to get into the room and then his his son gets bitten. But the idea is that he I, – I think the idea which was going to be revealed in Amazing Spider-Man 3 was that he injected his son with something. Oh, like that's he, right. That he, he, has he special, activated his blood. That he has special blood because we were, we're still blood. stuck on that stupid shit. So he activates his blood. So it's, it's – uh, So that not it's, anyone could be Spider-Man. Only Peter Parker could be Spider-Man because his daddy – bequeathed him special spider-man powers wow what a timely and relevant story about and dynastic so, power <laughs> and so there were scenes in the movie that were cut god i'm angry all over again <laughs> <laughs> you could see them in trailers and in official images like Irfan khan had a much bigger role it mm-hmm. seemed to be that peter parker tracked down lizard in the sewer in the sewers and had like a big confrontation scene where lizard and or Irfan khan uh, revealed to him that Peter that his father had like injected his blood and that's why he became Spider-Man. Um, they decided to cut this out of the movie fairly late in the game because then they announced like in a press release that The Amazing Spider-Man was the first in a trilogy of movies that would tell the untold story of uh, Peter Parker's parents or something like that. Which um, something the audience to that have been clamoring for. Please no. tell me more about Ma and Pa Parker. <laughs> which the which is what happened with Amazing Spider-Man 2. Here's the thing though. The Amazing Spider-Man is pretty good actually. I disagree. I, I think it's hot garbage. <laughs> I don't think it is. So I so the lizard stuff is stupid and the third act is stupid. Andrew Garfield is super charming and he and Emma Stone's chemistry is off the charts. And a lot of the the kind of grounded stuff Martin Sheen is the best Ben Parker we've seen on screen. He's great in this movie. Um, the scenes between Garfield and Sally Field are really great. Just the idea of him kind of struggling around. Like, it doesn't... The the big problem with Peter Parker in this movie is that he's a nerd, but he looks like Andrew Garfield. And well, he's not only does he look like Andy Garfield, but there's nothing nerdy about... There's nothing, there's nothing oppressed about this Spider-Man. There really isn't. Like, skateboard... He, he he's like a cool skateboarder. He's a photographer. He looks like Andrew Garfield. Like there's nothing. Basically, you go in being like, oh, Peter Parker is a nerd. But like, yeah, like you said, there's nothing in him that defines him as unpopular. Yeah. So like what? So he's not really struggling before he gets his powers. I'm sorry. I'm just thinking of the. The Donald Glover sketch where he's Jerry and he likes to skateboard. Yeah, if you if you're listening to this, go on YouTube, D- Google Derek comedy Jerry, and uh, thank us later. Um, yeah, I mean, it definitely doesn't get Peter Parker a hundred percent correct, and it doesn't get Spider Man correct. But the movie is really watchable, I think, for Garfield and for Stone and for I think Dennis Leary is actually really good in this movie. And I really like that interplay between I like the idea of um, I I do like the idea that Spider-Man is a dick in this movie and he has to learn to be a good hero. Like, as you said, he's listening to the police scanner, only listening for Uncle Ben's crimes. And he has to learn that, no, like, I if I'm going to be a hero, I have to be here. I just I don't know. Like, at that point, like. How much morality do you need to teach to like a fucking sixteen year old to be like all crimes matter? Listen, I was sixteen once. Sixteen year olds suck. Sixteen year olds do suck, but <laughs> I sucked. Like, I, and I sucked too. 
But I you would also be like, but I also have like a conscience and wouldn't be like, well, I have the power to stop a crime, but I'm only going to stop crimes that are important to me. <laughs> Isn't that what being a teenager is about? Yes, like he's just disregard for. I guess I just wow. I again, if you want to make a really self-centered Peter Parker, you do you. <laughs> but I don't personally find it. Also, that trend of like the self-centered hero, which reared its head again in 2013 with Man of Steel. And boy, I'm going to get some angry, angry emails now. <laughs> but no, you have these characters who are like their their arc is I'm going to go from a selfish asshole to a less selfish asshole. And it's like, do you not understand like part of the reason like these characters aren't selfish assholes is because their parent or guardians are really important. Like the reason Spider-Man is good is because Ma and Pa is because like Aunt May and and Uncle Ben are good people and raised him to be a good person. The reason Superman is good is because Ma and Pa Kent are good people. They're not like, I don't give a shit, let a school bus full of kids die. Like, it's just not, like, moral compasses do just not, just don't come out of nowhere. But because there's this emphasis to be like, no, you have to learn to be less of a dickhead, that's just not a good character arc. It's just not. I like it. All right. <laughs> What's not to like? Jam good. Ladyfingers good. <laughs> Meat good. <laughs> it's it, well. I guess I, I like parts of it. It's not a great film, and it super peters out at the end. But it, you it mean like when all the crane operators agree to help each other so that Spider Man can have a clear line to get to the building as quickly as possible? That See, didn't I think work. That's kind of sweet. I, I think, think that's the, stupid, super fucking dumb. <laughs> Why are all the cranes on the one on one street? <laughs> They're not. You have to suspend belief. Spider-Man I have to doesn't suspend exist. A lot. I, have to, I have to believe that. <laughs> I have to believe that the one guy he saved worked in Crane Union Operators Union One Hundred and Nine, and all his pals were working that night and could operate the cranes that happened to be on the same street where the Oscorp building is. Why bother? Like, honestly, no, seriously, why fucking bother? Why does he need the cranes? He's Spider-Man. He just sticks to buildings, and New York is full of skyscrapers. Why are you adding shit? That is okay. explanation I don't need. <laughs> okay. Can you at least agree that the scene on the bridge where Spider-Man saves a little kid is good? I guess. <laughs> or he goes into the car, like, it just, like, quiets down, and that's what I wish the whole movie was more of, because he's he gets in the car, and the kid's scared, and so he takes his mask off, and he shows them that, like, he's not scared, and he gives the kid the mask, and he says, put the mask on, and it'll make you powerful, and he helps the kid out. Like, that's... Yeah, I, I it has its moments. Really I nice. agree that, like, Andrew Garfield and, and Emma Stone have great chemistry. Like, there are things that work. The film as a whole is bad. Like, it has a bad guiding force to it. Which just gets exacerbated in Amazing Spider-Man 2. I just think you're biased towards assholes. What do you have against assholes? <laughs> Nothing. They're they're <laughs> fine people, except for all the assholery. Uh, speaking of assholes, let's talk about Amazing Spider-Man 2 for a bit. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to call it the screenwriters of Amazing Spider-Man 2. No. <laughs> Why? Why even bother? Um, That's fair. Uh, yeah, Amazing Spider-Man 2 is just more dumb shit. Um, which, by the way, they knew they needed a course correction. It's not like like Amazing Spider-Man set the world on fire. And their course correction was just be sillier and delve even deeper in the secret past of Peter Parker. I don't and care. Build, build towards Sinister Six. And build towards and Sinister Six. It. Yeah, gotta have that. Like, again, it's just all fran- – it's franchise building in service of nothing. It's – they've – 
Cooper in this movie? Why is who in this movie? Chris Cooper. Yeah, why is Chris Cooper in this movie? Um, Dane DeHaan really regretting some life choices. <laughs> hey, bro, give me your blood. Give me Can your I blood, <laughs> and then when I become Goblin and look like a methed out troll doll, <laughs> I'm going to oh put on God. a different voice. His performance as Goblin is so bad. It's a, it's almost a competition between Dane DeHaan and Jamie Foxx to see who can give the worst performance. Yeah. It's and I honestly give Jamie Foxx a tiny bit of leeway because if you're Mark Webb, you're not necessarily going to feel super comfortable going up to Oscar winner Jamie Foxx and being like your performance needs to be fixed. But if you're Mark Webb and your performer is Dane DeHaan, you should you should tell be like him, those cho- you, those choices aren't working, Dane. Yeah. Yeah, we have to figure this out. This isn't working. When he shows up as Green Goblin and he's just like sneering, and it's like, why are you? Are you you're just showing off your fake teeth. This is stupid. Stop it. Oh, it's so dumb. But the reason it's better than Spider-Man Three is because of Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone. Their relationship stuff, I think, is really compelling yeah, in this movie. I guess the, the scene where they break up, where she says, "Like, you no, know, I break up with you." Um, because he's he's doing that thing where he's like, oh, I can't be around you because it'll get you hurt. And she's like, that's bullshit. You're not taking my feelings into account. This is stupid. And her whole graduation speech of like, you know, live life to the fullest. Like, this is dumb. Um, and I think that interplay is good. Yeah. That's Shocker. Cool Mark Webb, the guy of behind 500 Days of Summer, is good at relationship drama. <laughs> but yeah. other things are troubles, are, are, are difficult. The relationship drama in those two movies is is good, but everything else is very bad. And mm. it like I remember him saying in the Amazing Spider-Man, he was very reticent to use CG, like he really wanted to go practical. And I think that you know it works pretty well. Amazing Spider-Man two, we said he felt more comfortable, but it's just overboard. It's way too much. Electro looks stupid. Electro is stupid. He feels like he's from Batman Forever, Batman and Robin. I don't know. I mean, there's just. I mean, I think also. Mark Webb, the hiring of Mark Webb really highlights the problem of what happens when you hire a hotshot up and coming director. And what happens is not that Mark Webb doesn't have talent, but Mark Webb doesn't have power. And so yeah. Mark Webb, like, yeah, he was coming off 500 Days of Summer, which was like an indie hit, but Mark Webb doesn't get to tell Sony what to do. He does, no. doesn't. So Mark Webb at that point doesn't really get to be. He doesn't get to be talented. He doesn't get to take risks. He doesn't get to say, this isn't working for the story. He is essentially just a journeyman director. And at that point, like, say what you will. I mean, here's here's what I would counter with Spider-Man 3. Like, say what you will. Sam Raimi is at least, a, like, I, I know what Sam Raimi does, you know? Yeah. Sam Raimi leaves his mark on a film. Mark Webb is anonymous in these movies. Yeah, and he made two movies after these that I don't, like, did you see them? I saw Gifted. It's yeah. fine. It's fine. And now he's doing Snow White for Disney. So, yeah, you know, <laughs> that's how it goes. That's how that how it goes. Um, yeah, Amazing Spider-Man 2 is garbage. Yeah, I don't think Amazing Spider-Man 1 is complete garbage. And so after Amazing Spider-Man 2, though, because I, I mean, we haven't even we took a huge turn that I thought huge would work left. out. And we haven't Listen, even talked listeners about listeners can hit pause. Yeah, can we pick have, this up. Yeah, you don't have to listen to this in one sitting. Um but we will get to the far from home spoilers. But I will say, um, with after Amazing Spider-Man two flops, 
all of Sony's plans just kind of go up in smoke. Like they had, they had like, like, you know, Drew Goddard's going to do Sinister Six and we're also going to have Amazing Spider-Man 3 and Amazing Spider-Man 4 and like carved out all these release dates and like, they're like, this it's being overseen by Alex Kurtzman and Robert, uh, Roberto Orti and I think Steve Pinker was the third yeah. guy. Um, and, and like, Kurtzman was going to direct Venom. Yeah, like they had this whole plan and then people were like, no, we're not interested. <laughs> And, like, Amazing and Spider-Man 2 had, like, the plum, like, it was the first film. It had the Marvel date, the date that now really goes to any Marvel Marvel, Marvel movie, which is yeah. the first weekend in May. Um, and people were like, I don't want this. I don't want Amazing Spider-Man. And it all just kind of fell apart. Well, interestingly enough, it didn't, like, completely – it wasn't like a Heaven's Gate disaster. It made $709 million worldwide, which is fine, but it was the lowest-grossing Spider-Man movie. They, they were on a downward trajectory, and this movie did not go up after Amazing Spider-Man, and so all of those future plans just went out the window. And Alex Kurtzman, who was overseeing this whole interconnected Spider-Man universe, left – um, to go create an interconnected Universal Monsters universe. And I just that think we don't really give enough credit to the fact that <laughs> Alex Kurtzman is a very successful man who is just a, a storytelling wonderkind. Just, it's just a just, genius. Just, can, I mean, if you want to talk about failing upward, my word. I don't understand because then he goes and does, you know, the mummy and it's supposed to be the first in this interconnected And it fucking shits the bed and they're like, come on and do Star Trek, Alex. Yeah. <laughs> What the fuck? <laughs> I don't get it. But it seems like Star Trek Discovery is doing well, and you know people like that show. So not maybe Star Trek fans. Supposed to be. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it it appeals to people, but the people I know who are diehard Star Trek fans are like, "This is fine. It's not Star Trek." Oh, so, oh interesting. Yep. They're like the Orville is more Star Trek than, than <laughs> actual Star Trek right now. Makes sense, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, enough trash ragging on Alex Kurtzman. So basically. Explain what happened. Yeah, I think you'll probably do a better ex- job of explaining sort of the gambit that Sony made um, in revitalizing Spider-Man. So Amy Pascal and Kevin Feige had been talking kind of for years, backdoor talks. They would have lunch. They would discuss. Um, and so uh, Marvel Studios had nothing to do with the Amazing Spider-Man movies and the Raimi Spider-Man movies. But Kevin Feige, like as the, you know, uh, the head of Marvel, you know, got to look at the scripts and got to look at cuts and he could offer notes if he wanted to. Um, in Ben Fritz's book about um, – gosh, I can't remember the name of it. The Big Picture. Point. The Big Picture. That's it. Um, he talks about how there were these kind of discussions between Feige and Pascal and, and at one particular meeting, Feige was pretty blunt about like, you know, these Spider-Man movies, these amazing Spider-Man movies. I don't remember if it was the first and second or just the second um are bad like it's not working and you need help and uh reportedly she kind of like got upset and walked away but needless to say they kept talking and came to the understanding that okay yeah what if we could work something out and this was amy pascal like amy pascal was fired from sony after the sony hack happened um after you know her emails were made public and she had disparaged you know angelina jolie whatever um i don't think she gets enough credit for like she is the reason that the, that we have Spider-Man in the Marvel Cinematic Universe because she is the one who made this deal happen because Feige was working, was dealing with Ike Perlmutter at Marvel Entertainment who didn't want to do it and Pascal was dealing with Sony and trying to convince Sony that this was a good thing um, to let another outside studio come in and produce your movie. So what happened was they struck this deal that Marvel Studios would come in, they would produce a new Spider-Man reboot. They would be the creative lead producer, meaning that they... Um, 
had input on the script. They would help hire the director. They would help cast it. They would help the production along. They would, you know, have producers on it. But they made no money from it. There was no money exchanged. All of the box office comes to Sony. So all of the box office money from Spider-Man Homecoming and Spider-Man Far From Home goes to Sony. In exchange, Marvel Studios gets to reboot this character and use this character in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That first appearance was in Captain America Civil War. And I think Bats told the story in the podcast before of how like they were you know, working on the costume on set. But they were still trying to make the deal – they were still trying to finalize the deal as they were shooting Civil War. So it wasn't like Tom Holland was cast and two days later he was shooting his scenes for Civil War. Um, so that was very last minute. Um, and then, you know, the rest is history. Now he's in Infinity War and Endgame. They made Far From Home and the deal's up for renegotiation. And Amy Pascal is no longer at Sony, but in, as part of her exit package at Sony, she gets a producer credit on every single Spider-Man movie made. And she has her own production company, Pascal yeah. Pictures, I think. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So she's still involved, even though she's not at Sony anymore. Tom Rothman is the head of studio now. Um, it'll be interesting to see what his kind of take on it uh, is now that Pascal is no longer the head of the studio. And and for those who need a background on Tom Rothman, uh, he's the one who didn't think X-Men would ever amount to anything and got fired from Fox when he passed on Ted. Yeah. yeah. So just a bang up, just a really, <laughs> really, uh, really fun guy. Um so anyway, so we, we get these revitalized Spider-Man movies, and I think – I don't think we need to go deep into Homecoming because we talk nah. – you know, um, and I don't think we need to even really go deep on uh, uh, Into the Spider-Verse because we've had episodes on that. I, I think Spider-Verse is the best Spider-Man movie. Um, yeah. That's me. I agree. I think it's technically the best Spider-Verse movie. It's hard to argue against it. Um, I think Homecoming is probably my second favorite, very close to it. Uh but I think Spider-Verse just by – and it's almost as if it's cheating, though it's not cheating. But it gets to tell like multiple origin stories and the overarching theme is that anyone can wear the mask. Uh, and that's really cool. And that's a really cool idea. I think it's executed perfectly visually. It's something no one has ever seen before. Uh, and then it's all anchored with the Miles Morales story. And it gives us the Peter Parker who's going through a midlife crisis. Like it, you just get everything in that movie and it's all executed perfectly. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. Um, yeah. All right, so we've we've run through the Spider-Man franchise. Let's come back to Far From Home. Now we're going to be talking about spoilers. So if you haven't seen Far From Home yet, stop listening. Okay, Spider-Man Far From Home spoilers. I thought the Mysterio, like, okay, Mysterio is again one of those things that the film is attempting to juggle. But I thought it was, I love the idea of Mysterio, especially, and I wrote about this on the site how Mysterio and both Vulture and Mysterio kind of represent the Trump era villains, which is an entitled white guy who's like, I didn't get what I want. So I'm going to blow it all up. But whereas sort of Vulture is very much like white working class entitlement. Um, uh, Mysterio is silver. There are pop-ups on the Collider website. Just FYI. (laughs) Good to know. Thank you, Adam. (laughs) Anyway, Mysterio is the Silicon Valley bro entitlement which is also destructive but also is about sort of people that would like the world to be post-truth and that the truth is just whatever you say it is i think that's a really potent idea for a villain and i like the fact that it's a villain that's about something and and not all marvel villains are some marvel villains actually for a long stretch a lot of marvel villains were quite poor and meant nothing Uh, yeah. Like Malekith. <laughs> Malekith, get his damn name right. No, I won't, because he sucks. 
But I think I like that. Eccleston agree. <laughs> yes. But I think Mysterio also, I think, I think Jake Gyllenhaal is having a lot of fun in the role and I think he's just a good actor. Yeah. Um, but I like what Mysterio represents and I like, um, I don't think, I think in a tighter film, what he represents would have more to do with Peter's arc. I think at most it kind of has something to do with how the fact that he can't be honest with MJ about his feelings for her. But I think at, at the end of the day, I, I like his relationship with Peter and I like what they did with him. Even if I think it's one of the best scenes in the film and one of the worst scenes is the whole Mysterio illusion in the warehouse, like where he's trying to get the, like where he's trying to kill Peter. Um, but he like shows him a bunch of illusions first. It's a really fun scene. It's an imaginative scene and it goes on for way too long. It does. And, it, and so this is where um, my problems with the movie kind of are. And part of it is just me personally. Like I do not like, uh, dreamlike movies, movies that like, or, or not, stories that not take an inception place. fan over here. Well, Miss inception isn't a dream. It's, no, it's in, a heist. Yeah. And it's in your mind. Like it's, it's something that's actually, it's actually happening and it sets up. I think what that movie brilliantly does, is says there are real world stakes in here. If you die in here, you die outside. Um, my problem with dreamlike stuff is that I'm never, I've never been super into like the theoretical and like, okay, like there are no actual stakes in here, um, except for like, you know, psychological stakes. And that's just something that I've never been able to get on that wavelength with very well. There are some movies where it works for me, but, uh, more often than not, it just doesn't really, I'm not able to attach to it. So the issue here is that I know Mysterio is a bad guy. I know there is no way he's a good guy. And from the beginning of the movie, it's very clear that like he is not a good guy. <laughs> like this is all very suspect. And so I spent the first hour of the movie just waiting for the other shoe to drop. So I couldn't really invest in like what was going on because it was like, hey, like, OK, they're not going to kill Ned and um, Betty. Uh, and everything that's going on here is just illusory. Like it's it's going to be fake. And I know that they're going to say it's fake. Just get to the part where it's fake so I can figure out who the actual villain is because the elemental stuff is is pretty boring um and then they get to that and then you get to these extended mysterio sequences like you said in the warehouse where it's just like okay and then it's just like aha got you again so i'm like okay if i can't buy anything i'm not going to invest in anything so they do that second one where they you know fake him out where he's not actually nick fury and i'm just like okay i can't buy anything in this movie so like who gives a shit like I'm, I, there's no reason to invest in things when mysterio is around so i'm just not gonna do it because like it, you're just going to be like, haha, I got you again. And I understand that that's Mysterio's thing. I understand that that's what makes it um, kind of like exciting and surprising and so tough for Spider-Man. And I think it actually is is dealt with well in the third act because you get to see inside the illusions. And so there are actual stakes because you're like, oh, OK, I know what's real and what's not real. Um but uh, it just kind of it, – it kept me from really, really investing in the movie in a way like in Homecoming. Like I already thought Vulture was kind of interesting um, as kind of dis a disgruntled employee. But then by making him the scary father of the daughter of the girl you're trying to date, like that just tied perfectly into this story of Peter Parker as a high schooler and what is uh, – like what is nerve-wracking as a high school student, as a teenager. And it's you know parents of people you're trying to date. Uh, that was perfect. So whereas here, just like I just couldn't really get into it. Yeah, I get the beats that they're going for. Like 
Peter has lost his mentor figure with Tony and, you know, here comes Quentin Beck who offers to be a new mentor figure. And isn't that, you know, like he, isn't that charming? But like you said, you know where it's going and it, the emotional stakes get lost uh, in all the illusions, like the illusion, like Mysterio is a neat idea. And again, I think Mysterio works really well thematically, narratively, it's a little dicier. Um, but I kind of forgive it because thematically I find it so interesting. And I'm like, I like that this is speaking to our world right now and that this is about as close as we're ever going to get to a Marvel movie making political statements. Oh, yeah. Uh, sure. Well, no, no. Right. I, I, I take that. I fucking take that back. Oh, my God. I want to. I'm not going to edit that out. But fuck. I, I, I just pretended like Black Panther doesn't exist. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. But it is it is. <laughs> It is still very Marvel movies don't always make political statements, and this this is a direct political statement that is that will be unmissable for any audience. Just in the same way, like you know, people who build you know walls instead of bridges, like you can't miss what that's saying. Yeah. Um, so I like the fact that it's making that statement. I just don't feel like Mysterio. Like I'm with you. I knew Mysterio was bad. Um, and you're just sort of waiting there. And again, I like what he represents, sort of this Silicon Valley, like, we'll save the day. And, you know, we don't care if things are good or bad. We just want we just want the credit. It, it kind yeah. of like if you honestly, the it'd been great if they cast some characters from Silicon Valley. I mean, it's like the cynicism is there. It is like those two worlds are interchangeable. And I love that Mysterio has his own team. Like he's just not like a rogue guy, but he has like his whole team of like, yeah, we're just in it for ourselves. And like the thing that drove us to villainy is we didn't get, you know, adequate credit, (laughs) you know, like they're just a bunch of assholes. And I like that. But I think from a narrative perspective, wait, 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 you like assholes in this movie, but not in the amazing Spider-Man movies. Yes, because no one is trying to convince me that these assholes are heroes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's um, But, you know, I, I'm with you. I think narratively, Far From Home is just a little more... Like, and again, I had fun with it, but it's just it's a little more scattershot than Homecoming. It's disjointed, and it doesn't necessarily even under... Like, it doesn't seem to acknowledge how big of a deal Edith is. Like, it's essentially the nuclear codes for the yeah. world. Yeah, it's treated like it's weird. Like it's this thing that is in the hands of the wrong. Like it's supposed to be just be like a tool, but it's not. It is. It is really kind of malevolent. You know, it's it. Uh, it has it has way too much power. It's not just like this little thing that could go either way. Um, it's way too much power for any one person to have, including Peter Parker. <laughs> yeah, which can we talk about Nick Fury for a minute? Because like, why in the world? First of all. Why in the world would Nick Fury – well, I guess all of all, why would Nick Fury give something so meaningful, so substantial, hand it off to a couple of scrolls while he takes a vacation? That's not Nick Fury. No, Like, it's what not. the fuck? It's not. And, it... and why would he – like, he's watching Talos's message at the end where Talos is like, oh, yeah, we ran into some problems and – whatever some problems with this thing that's the nuclear launch codes the entire world and nick fury just cuts it off mid-message he's like ah, who gives a fuck where are my shoes like what is going on they need someone to come in and be like nick we need to fix nick fury there is a nick fury problem happening and if i were samuel jackson i'd be super fucking pissed well i was watching an interview with him and it sounds like 
Okay, so John Watts says that Scrolls thing was added fairly late in the game. The Scrolls tag. They shot it late in the game, revealing that he was actually that um, uh, Sam Jackson was actually a scroll. He says the idea idea came to him after he saw Captain Marvel, which if he works at Marvel, he probably saw Captain Marvel pretty early. I saw an interview with Sam Jackson where he said that that like, he didn't explicitly confirm, but he said that he was not playing a scroll. He was playing Nick Fury coming out of Endgame. So the suggestion seems to be, and no one has like outright said it, but the suggestion seems to be that they shot the movie as Nick Fury and then decided in post, wouldn't it be cool if he was actually a scroll? And so edited around that. Yeah, I mean, and also it's not great, like, you know, wouldn't it be cool if he was a scroll? It's also basically acknowledging that Nick and Maria are doofuses in this movie. Yeah. And like, so to undo their to to undo their stupidity they're like well here are two people that wouldn't know that aren't super spies which is just not great it's just like on the one hand it's like oh you can't trust who is a scroll and who isn't and maybe that's setting up the Cree scroll war which i think is what the whole thing with Nick Fury on that ship is about yeah. and to their credit like earlier in the film um you know scroll Nick and scroll Maria say that they've located Cree sleeper cells on earth. So they're laying seeds for that. But at the end of the day, it's a huge disservice to the character. And it's just like, I get it. Like the Nick Fury. I don't think Nick Fury had a good year. I really don't. I think in Captain Marvel, he's unrecognizable. Like it's fun. Like he has really good chemistry with Brie Larson and that's all well and good, but that's not the Nick Fury. We know that's like a completely different guy. Um, and that's fine. Samuel Jackson is having fun, but it's not, again, it's not great when the biggest thing you can say about his character is that digital de-aging looks really good. Yeah. Okay. He's not in Endgame. I don't care. Yeah. He shows up at the funeral. He's not in Endgame. <laughs> no. Um, which is a huge slap in the face. And then you have this where. And he's not in Infinity War. And he's not in Infinity War, except for getting fucking disintegrated and setting up Captain Marvel. You know, and look, I get it. Like, you can say that these movies have grown beyond Nick Fury, but at the same time, like, at what point you're like, if you're doing one of the things that I think is good about the MCU is that characters usually don't get done dirty, or if they do, there's another movie to make up for it. Nick Fury needs, like, someone needs to make a movie to make up for this. Like, if Hawkeye is going to get, like, you know, if he sucks in Avengers, you know, even by Joss Whedon's admission. <laughs> That he doesn't yeah. have a lot to do. Joss Whedon's going to be like, but in Age of Ultron, you're going to be a lot better. And he is. Hawkeye is a lot better in Age of Ultron. Uh, Nick Fury needs his Age of Ultron. He needs a film that lets him do what he does best and really gives some texture to the character that we haven't seen, honestly, since The Winter Soldier, which no. was in 2014. No, he had basically a cameo in Age of Ultron and then was just MIA after that. He's not in Civil War. And th this is the thing is like I get that he doesn't have superpowers. He can't really do much. But he's either the guy who brought the team together or he's not. Well, like, his power is that his information. Either he knows everything and he's duplicitous and he represents a, a questionable worldview. Like there's meat to that character. Yeah. And they're not really using him. Like they're just kind of like basically the MCU is uh, kind of making a mockery of Samuel L. Jackson, which is that if you pay Samuel L. Jackson money, he will show up in your movie. And which is not untrue. I mean, yeah. I mean, re remember when <laughs> Samuel Jackson was in fucking, you know, the RoboCop remake and, you know, like, I mean, Samuel Jackson showed like, 
I mean, there's that joke in Ted too. Where it's like, who's Samuel Jackson? Do you ever see any movie? Yeah, he's the black guy. Um, <laughs> well, and by his own admission, he said, you know, like, pay me enough money, I'll do it. Sure. Yeah, and look, so you know, on the one hand, Samuel Jackson isn't choosy. That being said, if you're the Marvel Cinematic Universe and you and your whole thing is we care about these characters rather than just getting the rather than just who, what famous person can we put in our movie if you care about the characters you have to do better by Nick Fury and i was hoping that far from home would do that and instead he's just kind of a buffoon yeah it's a real bummer that that was the aspect of the movie that took me off the most cuz i was like what okay what is nick fury cuz i like you and i had this conversation of like oh man they did him dirty and it was like well they have far from home like that's going to be his his post end game movie and it's like just kidding He's not actually in Far no. From Home. Instead, he's, he's there to set up, presumably, Captain Marvel 2. Yeah, yeah. So, man, that was dumb. <laughs> yeah. I get the whole illusion part of it. Um, the other credits, credit scene, though, is exciting. Yes, I literally cheered when J.K. Simmons shows up as J. Jonah Jameson. Because I've maintained for a while now that he is the best piece of casting in any comic book movie ever and i feel like that scene justifies my argument <laughs> yes because like, they could have recast it that's what they've done for every other role they were like no we're not going to do better than jk simmons as j jonah jameson it can't be topped and that scene is proof yeah like you can change the stuff around it like he's essentially now alex jones in Infowars, and like, which is brilliant which is so brilliant but like the casting cannot be topped. And I, I loved that he was there. Yeah. Yeah. I think, and, and unmasking Peter's identity, I think is really exciting. Although I will say in one of the criticisms I think is valid of far from home is that he's not the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man anymore. Like he's trying to save the world. And if the world now knows that Peter Parker is Spider-Man, I think that just further doubles down on it. Like he is Iron Man's successor. Um, yeah, but it kind of puts him in an in a different position because he did a he didn't choose to come out on his own terms. B he's a teenager. Like, does he even get to finish high school now? Yeah. Um, and C he's supposed to be a fugitive. Like, basically, Mysterio's like Peter Parker killed me. Yeah. Um, that's a huge like. Those are some really big like that's a, those are some huge plot threads that are left dangling and that's another reason I'm like Tom Rothman don't fuck this up just let Marvel <laughs> tell their story. Well, I know the the original idea when John Watts came on was to do a trilogy, and the the third and final film in that trilogy would be senior year mm -hmm. uh, and graduating. So um, it'll be interesting to see him do senior year as a fugitive uh, from the law. Um, but yeah, I thought that was I thought that was a really interesting thing to do, and and I I have mixed feelings about the Peter Parker is Iron Man scene on the on the plane. I thought it was very emotional, and I loved the callback, and like it it stirred feelings in me. Of um, because I I love that Peter Tony relationship, but I also don't really want Spider Man to be Iron Man. No, I don't want that either because they're they're very different in a lot of important ways. Yeah, so that was interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I I mean I want to see this trilogy f finish out. I just think that Far From Home. It's a it's a film that is in, uh, enjoyable, but it's also compromised in ways that Homecoming wasn't. Because comprom because Homecoming was able to be the street level thing with a street level villain and post in a post endgame world, it seems like they chose to take Spider Man global. And I'll be curious to see if they go back down to the neighborhood level for the third one or if it's just a like you can't put that genie back in the bottle. 
Yeah, I'll be very curious. Like, and that's the thing. I really want to see how this finishes out. I am far more curious about the conclusion of this little trilogy than I ever would be about, like, what if Spider-Man teamed up with Venom? I'm like, who, yeah. gives, who gives a shit? <laughs> I don't care about that. Don't care all. about that at all. Don't want to see it. Not interested. Yeah. So. Agreed. All right. Um, anything else to say about Far From Home? No, I think, uh, you know, it's not a bad movie, and I, I don't think the MCU has made a bad movie since Thor The Dark World. Um, I do just think it's kind of a middle-of-the-road Spider-Man movie. So Yeah, I would disagree. I would say they... I. It's it's not a great film, but I would say Doctor Strange is pretty weak. Oh, yeah. I forgot about Doctor Strange. I there you go. <laughs> um, all right. Well, with that, let's move on to Recently Watched. What have you seen lately? Uh, well, spurred by your recommendation and Vinny Mancuso's recommendation, I finally watched Under the Silver Lake, which is on Amazon Prime. Uh, it's the uh, new film from David Robert Mitchell, who made It Follows. Um, it's a neo-noir mystery kind of sort of set in L.A. starring Andrew Garfield. That was supposed to be this kind of big, splashy movie. It premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in May 2018, but got a really divisive reception. And Which, by the way, I don't think anyone should ever trust a can reception. I think no, those people no, no. are bullshit. Yeah. I mean, because some of the stuff that's lauded as a masterpiece of can, it comes out and you're like, really that? And then some of the stuff where they're like lukewarm on it can, can is usually much harsher. And so then when it comes out, it's like, oh, this is actually really good. Well, harsher, but also way, also the stuff that they choose to slobber over is really, can be really weak. Like they gave like, like a 10 minute standing ovation to Fahrenheit 9-11. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. You know, which is a forgettable, like even among Mike, it's not even Michael Moore's best movie. Yeah. Um, so just to tell you what, what, what they're about it at Cannes. Yeah, yeah. So the word on the street was that, oh, maybe David Robert Mitchell was going to re-edit the film. Uh, we had a review from Gregory Elwood who uh, reviewed the film for us from there, and he liked it quite a bit, but mm-hmm. admitted it was pretty long and unwieldy. Um, A24 seemed to not know what to do with it, and they ended up just dumping it. Uh, on like in a couple theaters and on, or maybe was it even in theaters or was it just it was had a very open? limited theatrical release. And I think it was, may have also been day and date. Like yeah. Day and date theatrical release, but also released to buy on streaming. Yeah. Earlier this year. Um, but as an Andrew Garfield fan and as a fan of it follows, I was still very curious about it. And then spurred by the recommendation from Matt and Vinny, I had a little time over the weekend, holiday weekend when the fiance was away. Cause I knew she would not like this movie based on the descriptions to check it out. Uh, and I kind of loved it. It's, uh, it's a, a, like an absurdist satirical neo-noir mystery. It, it's kind of like inherent vice, but the protagonist is a Redditor and he's going down a rabbit hole that doesn't matter. And I think watching it with that worldview makes it more satisfying than like maybe if I had seen this with like, uh, you know, uh, a cold um, going in completely cold, I may have been a little confused by the ending because it's not like the ending doesn't offer any answers. It's just like, oh, these answers aren't relevant to the protagonist at all. Um, So it's basically about just kind of a garbage dude who obsesses over the disappearance of this girl from his apartment complex uh, who he met once and thinks he has a connection with and is traipsing all over Los Angeles into like trying to decode hidden messages on cereal boxes uh, and, you know, running in very strange social circles to uncover conspiracies that may explain where she went and why. Uh, and it's very like, I kind of enjoy just kind of languishing in the world that Mitchell creates here. Like, even though the guy 
sucks and the mystery is stupid like uh, it, it, it's stupid um i actually think the mystery <laughs> like the mystery is like you say that the mystery has no point i actually think it does have a point the point well, it has a point but it's not to him it's not exactly it's not to him it's which is scathing like in a movie yeah. like typically like oh when the protagonist discovers something it's important to his story and under the silver lake is a gigantic fuck you to anyone <laughs> that thinks that they're like to this entitled white guy who hasn't done anything and hasn't earned anything, but he thinks if he cracks the code, he'll win a prize and he doesn't get shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which isn't to say that the ending is unsatisfying. I think it's deeply satisfying. It is, but on a thematic uh, level. Yeah. Uh, but I just mean that, like, the mystery is – like, the fact that he's looking at cereal boxes is – A Nintendo stupid, Power magazine. Yeah, Nintendo Power magazine, but it's funny. Like, it's oh, it enjoyable. Is. It's a and really, really funny movie. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, even though you know that this is silly, I really enjoyed watching him go down the rabbit hole. Kind of the way that you enjoy, like, I enjoy Inherent Vice, even though it doesn't add up to anything at all. Uh, and nothing matters in that movie. Um, I enjoyed the world and, like, watching uh, Doc kind of, like, go around. Uh, similarly, I enjoyed the world that Mitchell conjured here, and I think he does a really great job of doing it. Uh, and there are some really great sequences that are just like, where did this come from? Uh, a character named the songwriter is very memorable. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think, uh, I mean, on the one hand, I get why it was dumped, because, you know, whatever. But, I don't know. I feel like because A24 is usually on the side of like interesting filmmakers making interesting films, this to me is an interesting film made by an interesting filmmaker. It very much has something to say, and it says it loud and clear. Um, so I, I'm kind of bummed that more people didn't get to see it, but it's on Amazon Prime now. I think if you're if you're listening to this podcast, you probably will have a good time with it. Yeah. Uh, because I assume you like films and you. Uh, uh, or someone who uh, engages with films on a deeper level than just like, oh, that was fun. Um, that's kind of what this movie is about, and it's just a lot of fun. I think Garfield does a tremendous job in the performance because I was kind of – I don't know what I was expecting, but it's not what I was expecting. But it's also not a performance that is going for broke. Like it's not going crazy or anything, but it's very different than anything that Garfield's done before. Yeah, he plays he plays a scumbag very well. Yeah, but a scumbag that you can't like. It's not like you are horrified by him at all times. Like, there's something oddly alluring about him. Like, you kind you want to follow where he's going, even yeah. if you don't. Yeah, you don't. Yeah, it's not. It's not like it's not a film that's cruel and ugly because it knows who its target is, and its target is you know entitled white dudes. And yeah, you can always you know you'll never go broke taking shots at them. It's not as dark as Taxi Driver, and it's not as tough to watch as Taxi Driver. No. It's not something like that where you're yeah. just like – and it's not – but it's also not as like twisted as like Observe and Report. No, no. It's um, much more fun, I guess. Yeah. Just to work. I would say, yeah, right now it's one of my favorite movies of the year. Like the more I think about it, the more I enjoy it. Um, yes. as, Same here, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. Yeah, after I exactly. Saw it. it's, it's a fun ride. Um, so I hope more people come to check it out. Uh, for me, I watched a lot of movies over over the break, but the one I'm going to talk about is 1999's She's All That. <laughs> because yeah. it's not good, but it's interesting in the way that it is not good, um, which always is captivating to me. So for those who haven't seen it, it's basically Pygmalion. Um, Freddie Prince Jr. plays the most popular guy in school. 
And his girlfriend has just dumped him for a, a real world star played by Matthew Lillard, who is just a delight in everything. Um, and so he makes a friend. So Freddie Prince Jr. makes a bet with his friend played by Paul Walker that he can make any girl in school the homecoming or the, the prom queen. And so Paul Walker picks uh, this girl, Lainey, played by Rachel Lee Cook, who I always assume it's like she's ugly because she has a ponytail and glasses. But really, the even the film says, no, what it, what makes her a challenge is that she thinks everyone should fuck off and die. <laughs> like she's <laughs> she's emotionally closed off, which makes it a lot harder to so that that's he has to break down. You know, he has to sort of connect with her, which means he has to sort of drop his own facade. Um, the film is very cynical, not in its storytelling, which is basic, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, teen exploitation rom-com, which is, you know, Freddie Pins Jr. He breaks down, you know, he breaks down some of his defenses. Rachel Lee Cook breaks down some of her defenses. They get together. Yeah. Everyone has, has good time. The problem with it is that I'm going to tell a story now. <laughs> so when Collider was with Complex, we would have to go to these annual meetings in New York and complex was all about like, how are we going to get the youths? And like, and it was amazing being in that meeting because it was just like a cold, cynical, calculated way to try to appeal to youth culture. And I'm like, wow, I bet this is what people in the nineties, like at MTV were thinking, how do we appeal to the youths? And that's what I was thinking a lot about while watching. She's all that, which is that, <laughs> A bunch of 40-year-old dudes thinking, how do we appeal to the youths? Like, it kind of reminded me, and I told this to my wife because she made this comparison for something else, which is that when you're watching old episodes of Saved by the Bell, it's very clear that no one even close to that age wrote on Saved by the Bell. It was a bunch of middle-aged dudes. And they don't know what's young. They know it's young for them, but they don't know what actual young people are doing. So when you're watching She's All That, they're like, what's popular with kids? I don't know the real world and MTV and I guess hacky kids, sack and hacky sack. And I guess kids today really are invested in who's prom King and who's prom queen. They're not. <laughs> um, but if you were like, if that used to be a thing and so it provides a structure to the film, but the gloss of it is just so cynical. It's just like, there's one scene where like, let's all go to the beach so we can get these hot young actors in bathing suits and like, look at them in bathing suits. And it's just, it's fine, I guess. It's just, it leaves this sort of icky aftertaste where, you know, I think if I had seen the, if I had seen She's All That in 99 as, as a teenager, I would have actually still not been that interested in it. And I probably would have been a lot harsher on some things that today I don't really care about. Like, no, does Freddie Prince Jr. give a good performance? No, he doesn't. But you know what? I actually think Freddie Prince Jr. is kind of charming and I've heard he's a nice man and he's gone on to have a very successful career in voice acting. So, you know what? More power to him. You know, I don't, I'm not going to, you know, as a teenager, I would have been like, you know, Freddie Prince Jr. sucks. Now I don't really care. Um, and I just think the film is, is fine for, you know, I don't think it's fine. It's not good. But I found it interesting because of how cynically it was constructed to appeal <laughs> to teenagers. And as a teenager, I didn't bother seeing it until I was now in my mid-30s. So I, I was amused by the whole thing. And that's my story of She's All That. As a teenager, 
who saw She's All That when it came out and who was into Hacky Sack and the real world, I can tell you, I really liked She's All That. <laughs> so it worked so on it you. Works. <laughs> I think there's a there's something of like a um, a feedback loop because I think I mean all of those '90s teen comedies were about like homecoming king and queen and even though it wasn't a big deal at my school i always felt like it probably should be or like it it probably is like i always thought it was weird that it wasn't a big deal at my school and it wasn't until later that i found out like oh that was only in movies really yeah in the 80s it was a thing but like not really in the uh early 2000s you know what movie i did see though as a teenager that had freddie prince jr what wing commander I've Which is fucking him. garbage. Okay. <laughs> it is. Him and Matthew Lillard are both in that movie as well. And it is quite poor. But, um, <laughs> you know, that's the movie I went to go. So that's how I spent my time as a teenager. <laughs> Not saying she's all that, but Wing Commander. And I think I've I've basically said it all there. Yeah, I was watching She's All That and uh, Never Been Kissed and all that stuff. Yeah. All that fun stuff. All right. Well, uh, so that about sums it up for this episode that ran much longer than I expected it to because we we went long on Spider-Man movies. That's how we roll. All right. Again, just as a reminder, we will be switching to a new uh, podcast feed and we will give you all those details once we have them. If you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week.